my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. If you know something's good, you know it, and the data says it's not that good, I still am like, okay, so the data's got to catch up because I know it's good. And sometimes there's something that I know isn't very good, and the data would say that audiences love it. I would go, there's no way. This just like audiences don't love this. I get that there's a lot of views, but this is not the thing. So will and you go with your gut in that situation? I will go with my gut. Welcome to this episode of Math and Magic. I'm Bob Pittman, and we're looking at stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, Ben Lair is our guest on First Impression. You look at Ben, you might say, wow, this is a pretty cool guy. He must be a magician, creative type. But those who've worked with him quickly find out that he actually lives on the math side of the equation, too. Pretty darn good businessman. Ben is the CEO of Group 9 Media, which includes his first tech media venture and the place where he made his mark, Thrillist. It also includes now this, Seeker and the Dodo, which was founded by his super smart sister, Izzy. Mm-hmm. Family business. Full disclosure, I've known Ben, or... Back then, he was known as Benji, dare I say that. And I've known him since he was very young. His dad and I are very good pals and have been for a long, long time. His dad's 
super smart, overachieving. Jeans must have worked somewhere there. And we've all had some wonderful adventures together. And Pilot Group, which was my private equity fund, backed Thrillist in the early days. So I've been able to see Ben through this whole thing and been so impressed with him for so many years. So did I leave anything out? Well, you didn't mention how handsome I am, but we'll, we, I assume we'll get into that. No one can see yes, Ben. Yes, right. Let's move to you in 60 seconds. Don't think too long. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, I can do that. Do you prefer pizza or tacos? Pizza. Sweater or hoodie? Sweater, unfortunately. I've gotten old. You have gotten old. I know. I'm embarrassed. This is going poorly. iPad or Kindle? Kindle. New York or Philly? New York. Mets or Yankees? Mets. Ninjas or pirates? Ninjas. Sunrise or sunsets? Sun sets. I like a sunrise, but I don't get them as often. Only when you stay up all night? Exactly. Okay. Secret talent. Secret talent. <laughs> when we were in college, and I can I can I give a longer of answer course, to this? Of course you okay. can. Go, go so ahead, go. when I was in college, I we did talent shows and I did them with Bo, your son, and my secret talent was balancing a broom on my finger because I didn't have any secret talents. That is a pathetic thing to admit, but that's true place to go to find out who you are back home with my family smartest person you know not your dad my wife first job first job was working for andre balaz at his boutique hotel company historical idol alexander hamilton came to mind so i guess i'll go with that you saw the show i saw the show favorite company you've invested in not necessarily the most profitable favorite company The company that I have the closest relationship with is Casper, the mattress company. Favorite company you wish you had invested in, but didn't? Well, we've passed on lots of great companies. I think probably the one that I feel silliest about is Harry's, only because I'm friends with Jeff. Who would play you in the movie of your life? The guy who played Jesse in Breaking Bad. Favorite smell? Pizza. No, my favorite smell is my kids. Best live concert. Obviously, I Heart Music Festival. Oh, I love that. What topic can you talk about forever? The media business or my kids again. Oh, cool. Okay, so let's get into you. Tell us about starting Thrillist. I don't get to think about this very often. It's also appropriate that I'm doing it with you. So starting Thrillist was... I think the way a lot of businesses get started is somebody builds something that they want to exist for themselves. I was new to New York, working in a job that was interesting, but I knew wasn't necessarily where my sort of heart was in the long term. And I became uh, sort of enamored with the idea that there wasn't a city guy that spoke my language. You know, my mother and I read the same city guide to make a decision about where we would go and what restaurants we would eat at or, you know, things that we would experience. And this was at a time when there was a cultural shift happening where people were moving from really valuing what you possessed towards valuing what you did and the experiences that you had. And I felt that I needed better information and more trusted information and more personalized information about how to spend my time and money and started writing terrible, really terrible emails to friends about stuff that I discovered that I thought it was fun. I did it with a college buddy, you know, one of my good friends from school, Adam Rich. He and I would go out and have drinks and eat food and do silly stuff and record it and send it out to people. And we actually started to get a little bit of a following and people started doing the things that we would recommend. And so we'd write about a restaurant and the place would have a line out the door. The next night, 
we started to think it was sort of interesting that people were taking our advice. Only then started to do a little bit more research on what a business model might be. And unbeknownst to us, came across Daily Candy, which had built a very large business doing the exact same thing for women. And unbelievably, we didn't, A, at first know it existed, and B, didn't know that it was owned by you, which is the most insane and sort of serendipitous and funny and bizarre way to come to something. The next thing we did was called you and said, uh, can we come over and get your advice? We know Daily Candy has been super successful. We've built this email list for guys that is doing something similar, albeit at a pathetically small scale. And you took a interest in what we were doing and it, you know, the rest is history. You know, it's interesting because maybe I've never told you this. Everybody kept coming and saying, we want to do daily candy for men, but they all wanted to be about fashion and things that women are interested in. You and Adam came in and what sort of, I think blew us away was you said, no, 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 no. That's not what men are interested in. That's what women are interested in. Here's the equivalent for men. Can you tell us a couple of those things that you covered, like Daily Candy, you covered sort of one thing per day? One thing per day. And tell us about a few of them. I mean, look, we, we were not scientists. Let's call a spade a spade. I think our first article was about a Mexican restaurant that had been open for several years that we wrote about as if it was a brand new thing because it was Cinco de Mayo. But it was new to us. And I guess it was new to enough people that people took interest in it. When we started to really get our feet under us is when restaurants or, or new places that opened started to understand that we were we were able to move audiences. And so we went from having to sort of curate what existed into getting access to things before other people knew about them. And so at that point, what was a daily email was something where if you were really curious and you really wanted to be on the cutting edge of what was happening, we sort of became a must read because we were providing breaking information it wasn't breaking political news. It was a taco stand was opening. But if you were really passionate about living that kind of life, we were able to bring you that information first. And then we were maniacal about creating a brand and a persona that was different than the way that other people covered the category. And if we wrote about a restaurant the same week that New York Magazine and New York Times and Zagat and Daily Candy and, and a bunch of other reputable places did, and if you picked up the Thrillist review or the Thrillist recommendation, you would immediately know that it was Thrillist. After a while, we were able to package it up and build it in a repeatable, scalable way that enabled us to not have to edit every single piece of content ourselves or myself, but create something that could be the voice of a brand, which, you know, as you know, any great brand is all about what is that voice? What's that mission? Why does it exist? And how can you make it something that even at scale can be replicated? I think I remember it was either the pitch or it was one of the first newsletters you found flip-flops that had a beer opener in yeah. them. It was called The Fanning. And every time I would read Thrillist, I chuckled out loud. Our uh, lawyer at our investment group came in one day and said, do you know what those guys are doing? They had a party last night and it was a hatchet throwing party. Do you remember this? I, well, yes, I, I do remember this. That was a uh, sort of set the tone of what thrill is. I don't know that our lawyers would allow us to do that at this point. We had a lot of fun. It was, a, it was a different time. I mean, right. We, like the world was a little bit looser. Who are you throwing hatchets at? Random party goers who signed nothing. They were on a wheel spinning and someone was just flinging hatchets against the wood behind them. Yeah. It was probably not a great idea. In the first time an investors ever called and said, you know, Maybe this is not a good idea. 
So you were what major? Political science. Political science. Okay, political science guy. Had no real training in business, yet you turned out very quickly to be this very astute CEO. And one of the things I observed was you made quick decisions. You would say, we're going to do this, and it's going to happen here. And then two months later, you go, they didn't deliver. I fired them. I'm trying again. You never hung on to these old ideas or what you hoped for. You were very decisive. You held people to real clear standards. Where do you think you learned that from? Well, I don't know if that was a setup or not, but I quoted you as recently as this week on the 20-60-20 rule, which is an old thing that you used to talk about that I talk about all the time, which is this idea that 20% of the time, the things that you do or the decisions that you make in business are obviously right immediately. You hire someone who's a superstar, you launch a product that's a hit, and you know you have something good. And 20% of the time, you do something that is very easy to kill. It's just not working, and there's not a lot of emotional baggage with it. It's easy to sort of get out of the way. And 60% of the things that you do are somewhere in between, and you can rationalize why you're going to keep doing them, and you can also rationalize why they're not big hits. And the advice that you gave early was get stuff out of that 60% and into one of the 20s as fast as you can because the 60% is what kills you. That's the stuff that it doesn't really deliver profit or it's vanity metrics, but it's not anything that really drives the substance of what's going to power your business forward. And that's a philosophy that I have very much taken to heart. That's something that is an operating philosophy that we now have at Group 9 around how we make decisions, which is mediocre stuff can't have a place here. That's something that you taught me, frankly, and something that I try to institutionalize in our business and sometimes succeed and sometimes fail. I had no idea I taught you that. I've always given you credit saying, wow, look at him. He's no, but you know that. I mean, do you still talk I, about that? Of course I do. Weed the garden. It's not a clear winner. It's a loser by definition instead of defining stuff that's not a clear loser as a winner. That's in a more concise way of doing it. Next time I'll say that. <laughs> How do you balance quick decision versus giving people, executives or whoever in your organization, the time to make some mistakes and grow. There's not a rule. That's a feel one for me, which is if you don't actually think the person's going to get there, but it would just be really convenient if they did, you're probably better off ripping that bandaid. You just have to sort of really be willing to give yourself a good look in the mirror. And by the way, I'm sometimes I'm very good at this and sometimes I'm very bad at this, but how introspective can you be? And can you really acknowledge when you're just delaying the inevitable? Others came to knock you off. You got success very early with Thrillist. This was like a wow product. And up came Urban Daddy and a couple of others. How did you react to it? How did you defend your turf? It's a, it's a good question. I, I think that we, first and foremost, the way that you defend is you just deliver a better product. For a long time, I think we delivered a definitively better product. I think there were actually moments where we... You know, you hit a rough spot or a company gets a little bit of momentum and there were times where I didn't know that we necessarily had a better product, but I think that we had the support of our investor base helping us weather more difficult times, which I am still a huge believer in. And I also think at the end of the day, a lot of this is just willpower. None of this is rocket science, in particular, the media business. If you're smart enough and you're able to get a group of smart enough people to sort of believe in something and work together, you can will your way to success. We didn't have any tricks up our sleeve. This was just refusing to quit for a long time. 
you've always been open to a lot of ideas. I think initially looking at you, I thought maybe that's because you're young, but now I see you at your age and you're still young, but not as young, and you're still open to new ideas. In that early period, what was one idea that you say that definitely worked? And what idea was one that you say that definitely failed? And why do you think that happened? One of the definite things that worked was a strategy around how we were going to go and expand market to market. It wasn't a novel idea. It was something that Daily Candy had done, but we were able to stamp out and repeat a process of how we would launch a market, how we would partner to accumulate subscribers pretty quickly, how we would leverage our existing advertiser base to support a new market that we launched. And so I think that we built a little bit of a machine to go and, and expand geographically that worked early on. When did you realize Thrillist had arrived? I think I realized Thrillist had arrived when we got bigger than Daily Candy had ever been. That was certainly a moment, uh, an unbelievable moment for us when this thing that we had always aspired to be, we weren't able to use their blueprint anymore to grow because we had done what they had done. That was probably the moment. At the same time, I, I really have to admit, I have moments where I think we've arrived and then the goalposts move so quickly that it's very rare that I get a minute, even a second to really feel like we've arrived. But that moment when we passed Daily Candy, I think was one special one. I think when we created Group 9 and merged the brands together was another one. And now the best moments I get for sort of celebrating that arrival or success is when we, when we have town halls, actually. So nothing external, but when we get time with the whole company and get to sort of take inventory on what we're doing and see everybody in one space, we do it every six months. We did it yesterday, which is why it's top of mind. But those are really exciting and you know slightly emotional to feel the momentum and the progress and where we're at. Those are now the moments, but they're fleeting. So advertisers, how did you- <laughs> So advertisers, you yes. You started out as the CEO running the company, but you also started out as the- face to the advertising community, you were 50% of your time talking to advertisers? Yeah, early on at least. How did you break advertising? Because you talk to people starting businesses, they get a little bit of consumer traction, they can't seem to make money. You did, and sort of surprisingly well early on. What did you do that you think is unique or responsible for that? I think there are moments in time where things are easier or harder. I think when we launched, the tide was a little different, and Daily Candy was this rising exciting proposition. They had popularized email marketing for a consumer audience. They had pioneered the dedicated email and some formats that were really effective and that the advertising community leaned into. And so we got to ride those coattails very directly. I mean, the way that we prospected was we looked at people who were spending money with Daily Candy and we went to them and said, we're doing that, but for guys. And that was how we got a lot of our early business. And today, you still spend that much time with advertisers? I spend a lot of time thinking about our advertising business. I spend less time out in market in specific meetings. I do it in chunks. So I'll do it, you know, when we're out in Can or in CES or, but my team is incredible and so thoughtful and so creative. But, you know, I can still add my value here and there. Thrillist has gone from frat boy humor would throw hatchets at people at our yep. parties to 
I hate to use this word, sophisticated. Well, uh, let's not. I would also <laughs> hate for you to use that word. Okay, let's think of something else other than sophisticated, but it's certainly evolved. Yes. How do you evolve the brand like that without leaving your consumers behind or replacing one audience for another? It's something that we struggle with and talk about a lot, particularly these days. It's something that's just front of mind. The brand grew up for a while with us just because we didn't know how to stop it from growing up with us. At a certain point, the company got bigger and we went into other businesses and I let it go. It was no longer a, a you know, a reflection, a of, reflection you. of me. Thank you. That was what I was looking for. The things that we realized over time were the lifestyle that we were promoting and celebrating was, again, it was about experiences and about every day being better than the last and doing the stuff that you love. That's not for guys. That's just for people. That's a much broader audience. And so when we realized that our mission was one where we didn't have to contort it in order to make it applicable to a broader audience, we gave ourselves permission to let it be for a broader audience. And that has served us well. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. 
when I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Ben Lair. You have a bigger-than-life dad, Ken Lair. He's the chairman of BuzzFeed, Blade, and God knows what else. He has always been on the cutting edge. He founded Huffington Post with Arianna Huffington. He was in the C-suite at AOL in its heyday at Time Warner too. Before that, he had a huge communications company, and indeed, he was working with Microsoft and Bill Gates when they sort of became icons right before AOL. What did you learn from your dad? He's really good at just cutting to the core of an issue and doing away with a lot of the waste and getting to what's important. And so that's something that I try to do as well. So that's the thing in business. But, you know, the business advice is secondary. The thing that, that I've taken from him is how to prioritize business vis-a-vis your family because I'm a much better business person when business comes second. If I'm settled with my family and I put my kids to bed every night and like in that rhythm and, and always putting family first, then it allows me to put business in a much healthier place and make much more rational decisions. So your dad was, a, I know, a great role model for you there. Mm-hmm. The uh, family always came first to him. Uh, and when your yep. mother was away, uh, he would sneak you off to McDonald's to have the forbidden food. It's true. Talking about your family, how do you think about work? family balance and what do you recommend to the people you work with and the people who you give advice to i don't have a specific like here's how you should spend your time but i would just say that family needs to come first for me what that means is i put my kids to bed i'm with them every morning and then i put my kids to bed four out of five weeknights and then by the way i go back out so tonight I will go home. I'll be home before seven o'clock. I'll put my kids in bed. I'll have half an hour with them. And then I have a work dinner. But that for me is like a really important thing that grounds me. And also I'm with my kids at 730 in the morning. I don't want to say I'll see you tomorrow. That's how I've built my calendar and how I've structured my work life. And I have two jobs, investing and running group nine. You know, my days are booked to the second and I book my family into that day it's really easy to just let the calendar fill up and not make that a priority, but that's something that I won't 
I won't do. Do you put your phone away when you're with the family? Yeah, I try to. And there are days when I forget to. Uh, do your kids remind you? Uh, my kids don't remind me to put my phone away, except my kids want to pull it out of my hand and play with it, which is very depressing. We live in a confusing world right now. The addiction to technology is is horrifying. And so I really have to set boundaries for myself. I don't sleep with my phone in my room anymore. Do you have an alarm on your phone? No, I have an alarm clock. I'm like, what? From 1910. Wow, you're a Luddite. I hope it's a clock radio. It's a clock radio, except I don't know how to set it. So it just goes, set it to Elvis Uh, Duran in the morning or the breakfast club or uh, one of our other great shows here in New York. So about 10 years ago, Inc. Magazine picked you as one of their 30 under 30. But it was also about the time you started Lair Ventures with your dad. Tell me about starting that and how you weave that into your J-Job running thrill list. New York was at an interesting point 10 years ago where New York wasn't a tech town yet. And I was starting Thrillist and my dad had started HuffPo, as you mentioned. And my dad actually just had a super interesting insight, which was your friends or my friends were leaving good schools And instead of wanting to go and work on Wall Street or work in consulting, they wanted to go work at startups or start companies. And he said, that's crazy. I've been working in New York for 30 years. I've never seen any smart young kids want to go start companies. There's something happening right now. I said, that's a very nice idea. Can you leave me alone? I have to go back to work. And he said, we should invest in some of these companies. And I said, okay, I'll let you know if I see any companies that are interesting. We were making little investments. And then a few months later, we looked at the investments that we had made and we figured that they were actually pretty interesting. So we decided to raise a little fund. You were one of our first investors and it was really friends and family who gave us a little bit of money. And we used that money to hire one person to sort of help professionalize and institutionalize what we were doing since we both had other jobs. It's just so happened that that vintage was BuzzFeed and Warby Parker and this awesome generation of New York startups, but in particular, iconic consumer startups. And so what happened was we got our brand and our name associated with these companies that became sexy and exciting. And so right time, right place, we suddenly started everybody who wanted to go build the Warby Parker of whatever calling us. And eight funds later, it's worked. It's been amazing. And we built this great team and we've been able to build, you know, arguably the strongest brand in early stage New York investing, which is nuts. It's impressive. It's impressive. So contrast being an investor with being an executive. My best and worst days are being an executive. It's harder, uh, but when it works, it feels good. So that's the short version of it. I think that and investing, you don't feel that. So if you make a sure bet and it fails, then you go, eh. We make an amazing investment and it fails. I go, eh, they screwed it up. Of course, I don't like to lose. And I'm so happy when these companies become big and special. And the reason I said Casper earlier is because that was one where we, from minute one, were the lead investor and we don't take board seats sort of as a principle because of the number of investments we had. But that's the one board seat I ever took from day one. And that's turned out to be such a fabulous company that it's been just a really cool journey to be on. Do you sleep on Casper? Of course. And if you don't, that's very rude. Come on. I know Neil would kill me if I slept on anything else. Thank you. So what's your investment process? It's very collaborative. There are four partners, three managing partners, four total partners, and then an investment team of five other folks 
who are all really smart and really different, different areas of interest, areas of expertise, generations. And so we have these interesting perspectives. And then we have a three-person platform team and a two-person finance team. And we all have a partner meeting together and we talk about what we're looking at together. We don't do any deals that multiple partners haven't met with. It's not a consensus-driven model. So anyone can lead a deal. Any partner can, can any a deal. partner veto a deal. Any partner can veto a deal. We don't formally use table pounds and vetoes. We sort of agree to disagree, and then someone goes forward with an investment or or not. You know, we make about twenty to twenty. Let's call twenty new investments a year, plus a bunch of follow-ons. And so there's a lot of velocity. If we love something, we'll do it. We try not to invest in competitive companies. We're incredibly founder centric. The place where I think we really win is in having empathy because we know how hard this is. I know how terrifying it can be to build something. And so when times are good, everyone loves their investors because their investors are cheerleaders. When times are bad, that's when you really understand what kind of an investor you have. And I think that we are pretty understanding and sensitive. We don't like it when stuff goes wrong. And obviously, if we think someone is being fraudulent or really irresponsible, that's not good. But if people are really trying hard and doing the best they can and things don't work out, like, that's okay, and we'll back you next time again. So you're an operator. Yeah. Everybody there is basically an operator yeah, that's as idea. investors. How do you bring that expertise to bear on your investment so you're not just money? It's a great question. So there's a few ways that we do it. One is real institutionalized structure. We have a support team. We're creating events for people to meet one another. We have forums where founders are asking each other, in some cases, really hard questions. In other cases, recommendations for a vendor. We have a full-time recruiter, a senior recruiter on our team who parachutes into companies. And so when we invest over the next few quarters, it's very likely that we'll send a recruiter in for three months part-time to help you build out your executive team, get your feet under you in the early days. We have a process for leaning in really hard around helping a company prepare for its next round of fundraising as it relates to pitch practice and building decks. And so there's the sort of more structured piece. And then there's the much less structured piece, which is how are we there when they need advice from somebody who's maybe seen this before and who's going to have an incentive to really care. And so we're available 24 seven. And I never know in a day whether I'm going to talk to one of our founders or whether I'm going to talk to, I mean, I might talk to none. I might talk to four, but generally speaking, the model is that companies graduate. And so we're with a company through a seed round. They raise later stage financing. They have a series A or a series B investor who owns 20% and has put a bunch of money in. And there is somebody else who's the sort of primary board member. And that's what enables us to, over time, build a larger and larger portfolio and still feel like we can deliver the level of service that we owe the founders. So there are people listening today, I'm sure, who have an idea. They've got their thrill list in their head. What is it that grabs an investor and what is it that turns them off? I mean, it's a little bit like dating. You just feel it or you don't. You look, you need to be really passionate about what you do, really knowledgeable about what you do. There's a balance that we like to see around having very strong conviction for what you want to build, but not so much conviction that you seem unwilling to examine other ideas or viewpoints. We sort of believe that every one of these companies has to pivot at some point in some way, shape, or form. And so you want to see that sort of flexibility or malleability, but not so much that they come in and they say, we want to build this thing and it's black. And I go, 
what about white? They go, yeah, 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 white. So that's the, that's the balance. It's just somebody who has a head on their shoulders and a belief in what they want to build and can articulate why they want to build it and why it's a good opportunity. And you believe that they're going to walk through walls to get it done. But I will say being more prepared and having better materials and having a vision for what the business is going to look like. And, you know, if you want to raise one and a half million dollars, I'd like to understand why that's the right amount of money and how long it's going to get you and what the different outcomes might be from that. But I'll forgive some lack of technical knowledge or business savvy if it's somebody who I think has such a keen understanding of the consumer that they're going after, the market that they're entering. So there's no formula. What's more important as an investor, the person or the idea? I think that the person is more important. Right now, we're investing in people we love with an idea we like okay. And we talked about this for a long time in the partner meeting because we said, oh, God, they're so compelling. They're so smart. They're, what a great team. Go, ah, this market's not awesome. Yeah, but they're going to pivot and we love them and we don't want to miss being in business with them. And even if this isn't the one that gets there, the next one will be. And if we take a slightly longer term approach, these are people we want to be in business with. You would never say that about an idea and go, oh, this idea is going to be awesome, even though we think these people are terrible and fraudsters. This podcast is about math and magic. Let's talk specifically about the math. How much were you looking at data in the early Thrillist years? As much as anybody else doing what we were doing at that point. What kind of information did you look at to inform you? Besides your friends say, wow, Ben, you're doing a great job. I mean, there was a lot of anecdotal information about the impact that we had on the businesses that we covered. That was really important because there was something in that that measured trust. You know, we did a lot of studying click-through rates, share rates, and unsubscribe rates. We did, I think, uh, as good a job as we could have with the resources that we had to sort of study our subscription funnel and to look at the efficacy of some of the partnerships that we built. But in reality, it was just a much less data-rich world back then. And so Thrillist was built with enough data that we weren't blind, but a lot more of the magic than the math. Today, you're running a lot of businesses. They're all in this data world. Yeah. What data do you look at and what's so important to building these businesses? Now, you know, there's enough data that you can you can hang yourself with it, right? <laughs> and so now the question isn't, are we using data? The question sometimes is, are we using too much data? And what do you think? Well, I think that the answer is often that we are using too much data. I don't know that I would say that in our specific business, we're using too much data. If you know something's good, you know it, and the data says it's not that good, I still like, okay, so the data's got to catch up because I know it's good. And sometimes there's something that I know isn't very good and the data would say that audiences love it. And I would go, there's no way. This just like audiences don't love this. I get that there's a lot of views, but this is not the thing. So and will you go with your gut in that situation? I will go with my gut. That's on one side of the business. I think in the advertising business right now, data is a terrifying, terrifying thing. Why? Uh, well, just because everything in digital is just right to the lowest common denominator. Almost all money being spent digitally is being spent blindly. Do you think Google search gets credit for a lot of attribution that they didn't cause? I mean, look, I think Google's a good ad product, but we're in a last click attribution world. So whoever's got the last click. Totally, 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 totally crazy. 
And by the way, if I'm a marketer, it's hard to turn off the drug that some of these things create. You um, started out with a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the way, you added video. You added all sorts of stuff. Talk to me about audio. Obviously, I've got a self-interest yes, here. Yes, you do. Uh, but podcast, Alexa, smart speaker, how does it all fit together, and what do you think that is telling us about the marketplace? Yeah, well, I mean, starting with podcast, I think it's just a super compelling medium, and it's something that we're investing in and looking at doing, and hopefully we're going to do some stuff with you guys, which is really exciting. The data is overwhelmingly clear that this is a preferred format for young folks to get content and it's a big part of their commute. And I think it works well with the kind of narrative storytelling that we do and the kind of voices and personalities that we have and the kind of brands that we have. So I'm a big believer in that. Let's get to future of the media business. Yep. Where do you think all this goes? I think it's all... AM FM's number one on Alexa. AM FM, yeah. Yeah. Number two, weather. I wake up and do weather and then my kids listen to Moana. We'll get them on Z100 soon. Okay. You'll love it. That's a deal. Um future of the media business. I think that more consolidation is coming. I think more consolidation up in the stratosphere is coming. I think more consolidation in digital is coming. I think content creators and pipe owners continue to join forces. I think if you're a consumer, it's awesome. There's going to be a lot of great content for a long time. And you have companies that don't even care about the media business who are going to spend billions and billions of dollars underwriting content to get you to do things on their platform that have nothing to do with advertising or or content at all. So great time if you are a consumer. If you're in the media business, it's it's a challenging time. There's always going to be good businesses to be built on brands that people love. And so it may not be as simple as it used to be with dual revenue stream model, but I think media companies are going to have to be good at a lot more things simultaneously than they used to be right now. And they're going to need to figure out ways to directly engage their audiences and sell things to them while also selling advertising and also creating experiences and licensing and selling IP and working with the distribution platforms. I mean, it's just a, it's a confusing time, but I think it's a very hard time to be in a small independent media business in any category. This is math and magic. Who is the greatest mathematician, you know, that person who plays the math side of the equation best? There is a a guy on our team who runs data and analytics and research and who's one of our executive team members. His name is Ashish Patel, and he is somebody who everybody in our company looks at as being an amazing math leader. Who's the greatest magician? Who's that creative person? You know, you still got to go back to like Steve Jobs, right? He might be a little bit horrified at what the creation is being used for now, but that changes the world like nothing has ever changed the world. There's still nobody that's done anything close to that as far as I'm concerned. Ben Lair, CEO of Group 9, founder of Thrillist, someone who's gone from being young Turk to establishment, one of the real geniuses of the business, and thanks. Great being here. Here's a few lessons I take away from this episode with Ben. Use the 20-60-20 rule. 20% of the decisions are easy to green light. 20% of the decisions are easy to kill, but 60% is the gray zone that takes up your time. Get things out of that middle. Decisions about people can be hard, but it's better to make quick decisions and not just postpone the inevitable. 
And finally, Ben's philosophy is that it's more important to invest in the person than the idea. A talented person or team can always pivot, and you don't want to miss an opportunity to work with the right people. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.